everybody, welcome to King of the Ride podcast. Ted King here. After what feels like uh, a wet and cold and lingering winter, coast to coast, here we are. It looks like spring has at last sprung. The King family is here in Healdsburg, California, as we've been for the past oh, month plus a little bit. We're taking in two months of hosting rides, leading events, bringing people together at the Mill District Velo. That is a very cool project that we've been part of for, I want to say, six years now. Sheesh, time flies. But, But seriously, California is coming out of its 18th atmospheric river of the winter. Things are now green, they are lush, they are gorgeous. We, of course, are keeping tabs on friends and family around the country. We check in on our, on our home sweet home back in Vermont, and it's, uh, it's great to see people out, riding in short sleeves, enjoying the start of spring. Which brings us to the start of the Lifetime Grand Prix. Now, now the gravel season has, of course, started. Our last episode was with world tour icon turned gravel pro Nicholas Roach at the Mid-South in early March and October. That's the event that I call the unofficial nationwide start of the gravel year. Now, of course, the Grand Prix isn't all gravel events all the time, and this first one at Sea Otter is a mountain bike race, which is fitting that we now have a mountain biker as our guest today. Russell Finsterwald is our guest. Now, now, mountain biking is his background, but he made a huge splash of the Grand Prix. He wrapped up the season in third place last year, and he's looking for more this coming year. So with a big season ahead... With a very impressive season behind him, I wanted to hear more about Russell. His background, his history, his goals, ambitions, hopes, dreams, plans for 2023 and beyond. This was a really fun conversation. I was really glad we got to catch up. Spring, staying on topic, means new fun things. We at Untapped are thrilled to introduce Bulk Untapped, plus a super handy flask to store the equivalent of up to five untapped packets in this convenient little container. With this new product, you won't be fumbling around with trash in your pockets. It is easy to use, easy to deliver fuel right to your mouth, easy to clean. The flask looks and feels super sleek. To be perfectly honest, I was a holdout at the untapped office, but finally came around, and frankly, it's all I use. So I love it. Here's what I'm going to do to help incentivize you. Listeners of this podcast will get one of these super sweet untapped branded flasks for free with the purchase of at least one bottle of bulk untapped. It's as simple as this. Add at least one bottle to your cart. Put in the code KOTR, King of the Ride, KOTR, and a flask is added for free automatically. Again, use the code KOTR while shopping at untapped.cc for bulk untapped. And the flask is yours for free. Buy it now. Thank me later. Folks, thanks very much for listening. Here we go with Russell Finsterwald. Where are you at these days? Uh, we are in, thankfully, sunny California. Uh, we're so home is Vermont, and we're doing a two month stint up in Sonoma, which is uh, nothing shy of amazing. It's it's typically bright, sunshiny, and warm, and everything's wonderful now. Right, <laughs> but they're having atmospheric river after atmospheric river, and yeah, it seems pretty gnarly. Like. Every time I see something from California, it's basically just dumping rain, it seems. Yeah, there's some accuracy to that. 
It's funny because it's so short-lived. Like yesterday, in the past two days, it's pouring rain. We've been here for two weeks, and I basically feel like it'll we get like three days of rain and then a day of sorry, three days of sun and then a day of rain. Okay, it actually, has worked relatively well from like a training standpoint because you're like oh, yeah, hammer hard yeah. and then three days on, one day off. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, nice. So that's been good. It's funny because I feel like the coming from New England, when you have when you get pounded by a storm, it's usually in Vermont, you get pounded by snow. And then okay, you have like the snow day, and then the next three days they're cleaning up, and then you can get back out. Uh-huh. Whereas here, even though it's like biblical rain and we're having these atmospheric rivers where they dump just inches and inches and inches of rain, you go out like the next day and you'd have no idea there's anything wrong. <laughs> That's awesome. That's hilarious. Yeah. Huh. Anyway. Are there like lots of trees down and stuff on the roads? There's a not pretty clear. Not a ton. I mean, I've been out here during other rainstorms when like there are mega winds factors going on, and yeah, you go up into the into the more wooded areas, and there's trees everywhere. I know in January that was the case. Okay. And huh. like closed roads and washouts and you know roads that no longer exist. This one, <laughs> I mean, knock on wood, it's 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 been kind of nice. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Anyway, no complaints. All things yeah, good. So you're in sunny Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's been a good winter so far. Um, just putting in lots of miles, doing the shootout here and there. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, can't complain. But same sort of thing. Like we've kind of had. I feel bad complaining about like upper fifties all the time, but by Tucson standards, it's been a pretty cold winter here too. Like lots of cloudy, gloomy days and. Yeah. Um, the Rito, which is like the river that goes through town, has yeah. pretty much been flowing like all winter, which is really rare to see. But sure. uh, yeah, it's wild. Like it's a wet winter in the desert, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, shoot. You got to wear arm warmers if it's in the upper 50s. I know. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I've just gotten soft enough that I'm like wearing tights and long sleeves and all that yeah. when it's that cold. <laughs> yeah, I got all these clothes. I got to wear them. Right. But, all right. Now, admittedly, Doing research on you was fun because, get this, Russell Finsterwald was an American football and basketball player and coach. He played at Syracuse University before going to the U.S. Army. He played professional football in the first regular season of the National Football League. Did you know <laughs> about yourself? Yeah, that was that was me in my past life. <laughs> that was amazing. But No, that was actually my uh, great-grandfather. For um, real? Yeah. Yeah, so that's who I'm actually named after. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. I mean, so, I realize a name like Russell Finsterwald is not just like your every next everyday next door neighbor. Right. You have some amazing family history that we're gonna get into, but when I brought that up, I, I had no idea or intention that was your actual great grandfather. That's amazing. Oh, yep, yep. So how much of that neat. legacy is like part of family conversation? But I mean, he's he's what professional football basketball player. He coached Ohio University football and basketball teams. That's amazing. Yep, yep. And then um, my grandfather, who was his son, um, was a professional golfer. He played in the and yeah. won the PGA. So yeah, we have a lot of uh, uh, sports in our family, I guess. Um, but it's not really something. It just kind of came about naturally, I guess. It's not like yeah. something we talk about. I think something in our families we always pursue like what we love doing. And I think sports is just something that a lot of people love doing. Uh-huh. And our family just so happens to pursue that, I guess. <laughs> right on. Okay. And then 
let's call this the official introduction. I mean, this 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 conversation that you and I are having is a bit of a long time in the making. Uh, we first started talking about having you on the podcast, I want to say five or six months ago. It was the eve of Big South. Uh, uh, Big Sugar. sugar. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, Big Sugar, October 2022. I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me to have you on the show earlier because you'd had a great season up to that point. And I wanted to catch up with you, hear how the year was going. And then lo and behold, you go on and win the race, which is outstanding and a, and a great you know bookend to the year. I have to assume, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that that was more than just another victory for you. Like, you've won plenty of big races. You've won national titles. Uh, just prior to that, you'd won the Apex Mountain Bike Race. You'd won big uh, uh, Gravel Locos out in Pueblo. Uh-huh. Where does that stack up? Where does a win, win big sugar stack up for you? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'd say that's probably one of my um, biggest wins of my career, at least one that I'm the most proud of, probably. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from, I sort of felt like I was the underdog in a way going into that race, um, just where I was stacked up in the Grand Prix. I'd been having a great Grand Prix, and then each race kind of was falling back, whether it was mechanical or bad legs or something. So I was sitting in fifth um, going into that race. And one of my big goals was just to go race it as hard as possible, make it as hard as possible. And um, I just felt like I had nothing to lose. So I wanted to try to crack guys out there. And that was my strategy to try to move up the most. Cause I figured if you crack them, they're going to explode. That's where you get big time gaps. So um, yeah, I think for me, yeah, honestly, it gave me a really big confidence boost moving forward. Um, like just knowing like how hard and aggressive you can make these races and you can not blow yourself up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a really big confidence boost and um, just an awesome fun day of bike racing. <laughs> the race was a hoot. I uh, I was in an interesting place because the year prior, I had absolutely destroyed my elbow and it's been this awful orthopedic injury. So one, don't ever fall on your elbow. But <laughs> I went back to that race with the intention of riding hard and, and basically creating like a, a solo time trial for myself. And so I, you know, rolled out in the front. The beginning of that race was absolutely berserk. Like it was supposed right. to be a nice neutral rollout, and we were rolling out neutral at 35 miles an hour. No joke. Yeah. <laughs> it was insane. I think the first like 10 minutes of the race, well, once we really hit the crosswinds, I averaged like over it was like 430 watts or something, just on the flats, just going. <laughs> so it was that was a full-on day from the gun. Yeah. And um, man, they're funny because you know these are open. Okay, a race like that with with the control of lifetime does get good uh, road closures where you need them, and then you know ultimately you're going out on on public roads, riding in rural roads of of Arkansas and Missouri are certainly not too populated. But it's so I don't I mean I'm not even I'm I'm purely making a point. I'm not even asking a question. It's it's crazy the speed at which we're taking gravel races. And maybe, I mean, as I'm, as I'm even saying that it reminds me, I think it was, was it you who said you were racing BWR Asheville and you were sort of eyes wide open at the, uh, cavalier nature of these gravel races. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's definitely something that kind of bothers me a bit with gravel racing is the safety aspect of it. Um, it, it, 
you do have to always keep in the back of your mind, like we're on open roads. So even if on a descent where you really can't see that far, you can't cut the corners that tight. I always try to like take them way wider than I feel like I should be just because like you always have to be thinking in the back of your mind, there could be a car coming up this that has no clue there's a race going on. And even if they're not speeding, they're just in the road. And you're not going to be able to stop. So yeah. Um, yeah, it is sketchy. I mean, um, that's kind of one of the things that first really caught my surprise jumping into the gravel racing is just like how kind of unsafe it is really racing on these just wide open roads. And um, I don't know. <laughs> I'd love to see something change, whether that's more closed roads or just better marshalling and whatnot. But um, for now, it's like literally something I'm thinking about the whole time I'm racing. And um, I think we kind of as a group have to just do our best also to prevent these accidents and kind of have to look out for each other. I think there's a lot of times where unnecessary risk is being taken in the front group, so to speak. Um, so I really think just avoiding situations like that will go a long way, even if we are going to be racing on open roads and whatnot. Yeah. For you coming from like the world tour, where you were racing on really well marshaled roads and whatnot where it's closed. I'm sure it was similar thing for you where it's just like, Oh wow, this is a bit terrifying. Yeah. I remember always <clears throat> using the term racing with the suspension of disbelief and, <laughs> but it was always within, I want to say like, uh, things in which you could control. And so specifically I would be thinking about and talking about like riding around a blind corner at 40 miles an hour on a descent and the suspension of disbelief that you're not going to get a flat, you're not going to hit a dog. And, and there was no assumption you'd ever see a car. I mean, I feel like it's over the course of a, a entire world tour season. You might see one or two cars on the, on a course where they're not supposed to be. Um, so it's a whole different animal this this world of racing on open public roads as much as it sounds like two different sports and almost like two different uh mindsets entirely you got like alley cat racing you know where bike messengers are racing through the city right that just sounds like mayhem okay admittedly that's <laughs> city but those are open public roads with traffic that's not really expecting groups of cyclists going down the road which is no different than gravel like right just at a different scale of seeing the cars. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. And especially, almost especially so because we're racing on these gravel roads that the motorists really have no expectation to see a group of cyclists come bombing around because they're just out in rural. Yeah. You never see anybody place. out there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. okay. My point is complete. I appreciate you, you <laughs> chiming in there a little bit. Uh, okay. So, Going back a bit, as much as we can look back at 2022 and say, yep, the year is over. I think there's there's something to be said about the congruity between, let's call it the success of the inaugural Lifetime Grand Prix and what looks to be the biggest series of, of gravel here in 2023. Again, the Grand Prix. You won the most recent event being Big Sugar. I mean, that's got to make you excited about the year ahead. Yeah, for sure. Um, last year, the Grand Prix was kind of this new sort of idea and we didn't really know how well received it would be and all that um but i really came to grow the series throughout the year um at first i really had mixed feelings with it um but i really love the level of competition it um brought to the u.s i think it is some of the most legit racing we have like it's it's pretty stacked um and i think it's cool to just um i think a lot of gravel races you there's always a mystery of what kind of feel you'd have at these different events um 
if you're going to a lifetime Grand Prix event, you know it's going to be like a legit weekend with a stacked field. Um, and I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> For sure. So, um, what do you What do you look back at in 2022? I mean, last year was was a year of ups and downs, but I mean, by and large, it it was successful from an outside standpoint. What do you look back and say, yeah, that worked. Let's do more of that versus, and eh, we got to we got to change some things here or there. Um, yeah, I think really just not putting too much pressure on myself for the whole series treated me pretty well. Um, just know it, it, the way you have to race the Grand Prix, it's almost like you can't really focus on one event. You kind of have to be consistent throughout all of them. Um, and this year there's seven events. And I think if you just got too stressed out for every single event, you're going to kind of wig yourself out by the end of the season. Um, so I just really kind of took it race by race. Um, and as soon as like, say you finish sea otter it's like okay that race went really well but now we have unbound so then you just immediately start focusing on this next race and it's such a different challenge like sea otters a three-hour race and then a month and a half later you're racing 200 miles in unbound um so it just really felt like it kept me busy throughout the season um trying to adapt to the different demands of different races um I, i really enjoyed that challenge um Sea Otter 2023 is going to be what, like a 67 mile race, something crazy like that. Yeah, they made it a little longer than last year. Is it virtually the same course? And to our listener, this is a tame, but it's a tame mountain bike course. Is it? Is it virtually the same style of of terrain and course? Um, I honestly haven't really looked at the course map or anything, but I would assume just kind of knowing the area, they only have like so much terrain they can work with. Yeah. Um, so I'd say it's going to be pretty much the same course as last year, probably with just a few added bits and who knows if it'll be more gravel roads. So there's a lot of gravel roads in between the single track there. Yeah. So I'm not sure if it'll be, um, more single track or more gravel roads with their adding, but, yeah. um, yeah, it'll be cool to see. So, I mean, it wasn't slow winning time of which you were what second last year for 50 miles was like three hours. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's pretty high speed. Yeah. Uh, how about, I'm not trying to beat a dead horse with the Grand Prix, but here we are on the, on the evening <laughs> going into it this year with the, the benefit of, of hindsight from last year, what is going to be your metric of success? Is it individual races? Is it a, a, do you have an idea of where you'd like to place overall? Is it just showing up and having a stout race week, uh, month by month? Yeah. Um, I mean, this year, sort of my overall goal for the whole season is I just, I feel like I'm really good at getting second and third and fourth pretty consistently. Um, really my goal is I just want to win more races. Um, I don't really care what it is. I just want to win more of them. (laughs) Um, I have a few that are like circled more importantly unbound. It's like, I don't know, for some reason I just have the bug for that race and really want to win it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd say that's probably my biggest goal for the season. Um, and yeah, just want to win more races, whatever it is in the grand prix. Um, so yeah, result. I'm not really looking so much at overall in the Grand Prix. I more want to just kind of focus on each race and performing as best I can in those. I know that'll set me up sure. well in the overall. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely. Like I finished up third last year. Um, it'd be cool to improve on that. Someone needs to take Keegan off that top step. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'd, yeah, it'd be yeah. cool to do. For sure. Yeah. With due respect to him, it'd be good to see <laughs> Even more competition. Uh, how about, how about the year in general? I mean, obviously the Grand Prix sets precedent for, like I said, I mean, basically a race a month. Are there other events you're doing? Are there other series you're doing? Are there FKTs that you're 
you know, you've got circled on your calendar. What do you have coming up in 2023? Um, yeah. So other than the Grand Prix, um, I'm going to do some of those UCI gravel world cups. Um, just, I don't know. It sounds fun to me to go check those out. So I'm going to do one in France, um, one in Belgium and one in Italy is the plan right now. Um, I don't know. Just kind of want to see what that's all about. Um, so I'll do those. And then let's see. No real FKT projects are um, on the calendar right now, um, but I have been thinking about a couple of different ones that would be cool to go for. Yeah. Um, there's the Arizona Trail 300 down here in Arizona. Yep. Um, and that one's like 35 hours. So it's not multiple days of not sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, something like that would be cool to try. It's just a matter of where do you fit all this in in the schedule? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So much racing these days. Yeah. That's the truth. Uh, doing UCI gravel races with the potential circle on the calendar for the UCI World Championships? Yeah, that's honestly something I'm kind of trying to figure out right now. Um, just because the fall, basically from Leadville until Big Sugar, I'm racing, I think that's nine weeks, and I already have seven or eight races on the calendar in that whole stint. Yep. So adding gravel worlds would mean i'm racing every single weekend from Leadville till the end of the season mm-hmm. um so yeah i, I kind of just got to figure out how to balance all that um it seems really tough to fit it in but i think it'd be cool to do so we'll see i might have for sure i got to take something out if i put that in and just kind of figure out all yeah. that <laughs> but yeah i think it i think it'd be sick if we could build like a legit american team for gravel worlds and go race it as like a a team not just go support one individual or not just go race it individually but get a few of us um that are pretty strong and could bring the jersey back to the u.s i think that'd be pretty sick yeah i mean it's it's rightful place i think for a lot of reasons i i had a conversation with pete i had the conversation with a handful of other folks how the way the race is currently set up and with you know a sporting audience that's I want to say largely European based, but then we have this booming field of gravel here in North America. Mm-hmm. The way the way the UCI World Championships are currently set up, it's a it's to to have success for road racers, right? I mean, you look at the top ten at last year's race, and it was all guys who raced in the World Tour. I uh-huh. think I think it'd be great to add more of the uh, unexpected element of the self support of the. You know, not just riding on some gravel roads and an occasional single track, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, we, we got a different flavor of gravel going on in North America. Yeah, I like agree that for sure. <laughs> I feel like it's no mistake by the UCI to have done it the way they did. I mean, I think they have a, a very rapt audience in Europe who loves road racing, and so why not make them go off-road? But yeah, there's there's something cool and different going on here. So with any luck... Yeah, it's definitely a different style. And that, that's sort of why I'm more excited about the gravel world cups is I feel like those ones seem more in line with what us gravel is. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. I, I really have no idea what to expect. So it'll be cool to sure. see what those are all about. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. So taking a step back here, I've been aware of your name for the sport in a decade or more. Um, I don't think we ever actually crossed paths until, Basically a year ago, it was a February 2022 Tucson World Championships down there at the shootout. Um, 
you know, word had gotten out that these these couple mountain bikers, you and Keegan, were going headlong into into the Grand Prix and and you know, hard charging into gravel. Here I am, this gravel veteran of a half dozen years under my belt. Uh, what I honestly found refreshing was your level of excitement and enthusiasm for this new call it genre of the sport. Um, what if you can take yourself into the mindset? where you were a year ago i mean you'd been a professional mountain biker for that at that point a dozen years or so what were your expectations going into going into last year yeah it was pretty wild um i did my first bwr in 2021 um just to sort of like test out and see what this gravel thing was all about and i was pretty hooked from the first race i've always kind of liked the longer style of racing um I just found more success. I mean, really, that's all we had in mountain biking was cross country and marathon was starting to get popular. Um, but yeah, I'd always felt I had more of a diesel engine and was better at the longer stuff than I was cross country. So I was really excited to try it out. Um, that BWR went pretty well. Uh, I ended up third there and was like, oh man, I think I could get into this and want to do more of it. Um, so yeah, winter of 2022 is when I'd say I like fully started embracing the gravel lifestyle or training on the gravel bike more sort of discovering like where you can take these bikes. And, um, I I'd had gravel bikes for a while. I just never really taken them out and ridden them and used them as a tool for exploration. So that's probably been my favorite part of gravel racing is I've just sort of discovered this new way to ride a bike. Yeah. And here in Tucson, we have tons of, um, like unmapped roads and, um, all kinds of like different cow double track you can take to link up all this different stuff so it's been awesome just like mixing it up finding these new routes to connect different roads and whatnot around here so yeah for me even more so than like the racing side it's been a refreshing change to my training and whatnot yeah for sure how about how much of your interest how much of your pursuit of gravel coincides with i don't even know the term like the the state of mountain biking in north america yeah i mean for sure it's like i think in a way switching to gravel it's a bit of a business decision like mountain biking isn't where gravel racing is gravel just has so much so many eyes on it Mm -hmm. um that i think like if you want to be racing in the u.s and make a career out of it you got to be doing gravel right now um so yeah i mean initially a lot of it was i want to keep racing my bike professionally and i think i need to switch to gravel if i want to do that (laughs) yeah and it's i mean i get to plead ignorance because my background is road racing and now this you know goofy world of privateer lifestyle on the gravel bike no different what you're saying the state of mountain biking is not where gravel is and the state of road racing here in north america is not what gravel is right you know, in my heyday of professional road racing 20 years ago in North America, there were not just one or two teams, but two dozen teams, two dozen pro teams showing up at the start of races. And if you have to assume that if there's eight, eight guys starting a race, there are another eight guys who are at home, not starting each race. So by sheer numbers, it's interesting. You got to assume the same, roughly the same number of people exist who want to pursue the sport of, of cycling. And even if I'm wrong by 50%, it's still a big group. Mm-hmm. That's a big impetus of folks who could get into road, uh, into gravel as they're looking for a, a state of North American road racing. It doesn't exist. They get into gravel. 
are you seeing the same? I, my impression is I don't see the same number of uh, mountain bikers getting into gravel. I feel like it's very much ones and twos is, which actually coincides with the question of, I, I remember last year seeing the new mountain bike series that's taking off here in North America. Uh-huh. Again, pleading ignorance, tell me what is the state of, of mountain biking now, as much as you said, it's a business decision. Is it taking off? Do you, what's your pulse? Is it, bigger better worse than road racing where is it where where is mountain biking yeah i think it's sort of in an interesting position um we have like a few racers who are pursuing the world cup um in the olympic schedule so there's kind of this group of racers that are kind of like off in their own world we don't really see them all year i'd, I'd equate that to like the world tour, tour pros who are still racing in the world tour and i'd and say we, we have about there. like blevins uh yeah, we have Chris Brevins, Riley Amos for U23. Yep. And then more so on the women's side, we have like Kaylee Batten, the Kate Courtney. Yep. Um, let's see who else is there. Sibilia. Yep. Um, and then we have, um, so yeah, there's a fair bit of number, a fair bit of riders who are still pursuing that side of the sport who haven't jumped into gravel just because it doesn't really support your goals. You need UCI points to have a good start. Mm-hmm. Um and it just doesn't help you get to the Olympics. So I think that's why we're not seeing those riders jump to gravel. Um, but then, yeah, domestically, it's um, in a bit of an interesting spot. For a while, we had the Epic Rides where there were sure. four events in that series um, with really good prize money. Um, I think it was a 30K purse at each one nice. and a 60K purse for the final one. Mm-hmm. So you could make pretty good money just doing the Epic Ride series. Um, and those were super fun events. But um, COVID, wasn't good for that series and now we just have whiskey 50 <laughs> um so yeah we also there's the whole cross-country side where you have a lot of u23 riders who are trying to pursue the world cup dream mm-hmm. um to race as a pro in the world cup chase the olympics and they need uci points um so i think there's still a lot going on on the mountain bike side of things yeah i think you don't hear a lot about it just because the media doesn't seem to cover it as much but um i would I feel like it's safe to say mountain bike is like somewhere in between a road and gravel right now. Um, there's still a lot of events going on. A lot of riders pursuing the mountain bike. Um, we have that new series that Steve's putting on, um, which seems to have a good amount of energy. Unfortunately, I don't think I'll be doing any of those, which is kind of a bummer, but um, yeah, it's cool to see like little bits and pieces happening on the mountain bike side. Yeah. Yeah. I rode with Kate. Courtney, I don't know, a week ago. And yes, to your point, I mean, the, the, there are a handful of women more so than, than us men who are crushing it on the world cup scene right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm on the bear Devo email list. So I see these, you know, these U 23 kids who are absolutely crushing it. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting spot. And to your point, it's like, where, where do you get that media coverage? Like I'm still a daily cycling news visitor and i mean there's nothing even about uh, uh cape epic so like if they're you're not gonna get coverage there then where do you even get coverage which is nuts right yeah it's kind of crazy i don't get why more eyes aren't on the mountain bike i think it's cool but <laughs> yeah. maybe yeah you got to go to like pink bike or something right, and right there right. that's that's where you can get mountain bike news but then it's all basically pretty like gravity centric yeah so, yeah there's just not a lot of places to hear about it interesting i feel like okay gravel's booming 
road racing in the toilet, mountain biking somewhere in between. This is domestically that I'm that I'm referring to. You've been in the sport long enough that you've seen some really interesting rises and falls of 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 mountain biking, and I feel like that's sort of the prototypical example of in a time that precedes you. There was, you know, when mountain biking was what came to be when it was first invented, so to speak, it was wildly popular. There's car companies throwing money at it. That's it's globally and, and nationally televised, and then it plummeted. There's so many conversations about okay, how do we keep gravel cool and how do we keep this this ethos that's fun and and of course everybody's happy as long as there's money being th- not everybody but <laughs> many people are happy as long as there's money being thrown at it and the sport is growing. Me asking a mountain biker like yourself, do you have a crystal ball? Do you see where it's <laughs> going? Like with the benefit of of being a mountain biker and having that heritage, what do you suppose you see? Yeah, I mean, I think like really, I think what you see works well on the mountain bike side um, was kind of these epic ride events where the racing isn't the center focus of the weekend. I think that's sort of what happened in mountain biking is the racing became what you came there for with cross country. Like it's just short, it's intense. You get in, do your race, and you get out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like it's just a different kind of fun that maybe not everyone's looking for. Um, whereas if you make it more of like an experience in a way, people seem to be more into that. Um, I think the Epic Rides did an awesome job, like having concerts. Um, so then you get the whole family out, like people are stoked to go to a concert on the weekend. There's the fat tire crit on Friday, which is awesome to spectate. So I think just like making sure you can bring the whole family to this weekend and it's fun for everyone. Um, I think that seems pretty key. Um, some of these events like seem it's nice there's multiple distances but i just don't think there's enough people that want to go race their bikes 140 or 200 miles every weekend so in a way i think the events need to like get a little shorter i don't know if that's sustainable but mm-hmm. um i mean it's nice there's options you can jump in and do the 100 mile race if you want to do a 100 mile race <laughs> yeah so, yeah exactly right there's sort of a uh arms race and you can create the longer harder gnarlier race but there's going to be a point of no return like not everybody right. want to do an <laughs> So great, great perspective. Yeah. The participatory and, and experiential thing is certainly, you know, wildly popular now. People don't just want to hear about it and read about it, but they do really want to be there. Right. Um, and I think gravel's doing a great job of that. Yeah. Like I see yeah. a lot of families at these events, there's kid races going on, shake out rides. So I, I don't know. I feel like, Gravel is certainly booming right now, but at least in my perspective, it seems somewhat sustainable at this point. So um, I don't know. Only time will tell. I don't have a crystal ball, but <laughs> I feel good about it how, how it is. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, no disagreement. I mean, it's it, it's cool to see its rise. Who knows where it goes, but all things going in the right direction right now. So my my podcast listeners will know that I, I enjoy a good chronology. Um, you got into cycling fairly young to have won, I want to say junior cross country and short track titles first. Is that correct? Yep. So that is to say it's rare that somebody's going to just like jump into those races and, and immediately win them straight off the bat, (laughs) a little bit of history. So talk to me about your early entry into the sport, because I think it has something to do with your, possibly your aunt, who I want to say is a maybe multi-time world champion 
yeah, she, um, I'd say my aunt's definitely the one who got me into the competitive side of racing. Okay. Um, sort of growing up, my brother and I always used the bike as a tool to like romp around the neighborhood and go hit dirt jumps and stuff. Um, so the bike's always kind of been this tool of adventure for me, whether it was like around the neighborhood or first discovering mountain bike trails. Um, but yeah, then when I was 14, my aunt got me, um, what I'd consider my first race bike. And by my standards, that just meant it didn't have a kickstand, which I thought was pretty sweet at the time. Um, <laughs> So yeah, it was middle school state championships and I didn't have a great race by any means. I think I was somewhere mid pack, um, but I really enjoyed the experience and was like, thought it was super cool and was pretty hooked. Yeah. So basically trained, like started training that winter, I would say, um, just did a lot of different trainer rides. I linked up with the local college team and would go ride with them sometimes, which was a really cool experience. Colorado. Um, this is in Colorado Springs. Yeah, Colorado College. Nice. Yeah, my brother went there. <laughs> oh, that's cool. <laughs> so yeah, there were a few riders on the team who would always take me out and sort of show me the ropes. I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, then the next season we used to have this great series in Colorado called the Mountain States Cup, which was about eight races that just went to all the different ski areas and would have a cross country every weekend, and it had some pretty stacked pro fields at the time like you see yeah. jhk and todd wells occasionally sam schultz like some of the big names at the time racing yeah um and like i just thought that was the coolest thing ever at the time so it's pretty cool to go to all these races with and see all the pros with their trailers and just how legit i thought it was at the time yeah. so i think like once i started racing the mountain states cup and seeing the pro athlete lifestyle i was like man i want to do that mm-hmm. um and yeah just kind of kept chasing working hard and just trying to be better in every race I did and uh, was pretty hooked <laughs> and then yeah we had mountain bike nationals in Sol Vista Colorado so I traveled to do those I hadn't done a ton of like in traveling or racing outside of Colorado when I raced those national championships um I think I'd done one of the Norbas in Utah so I really didn't fully know what I was getting into um but sort of had an idea like maybe I could win this and that was kind of my biggest goal of the season. So yeah, I was able to get the win in both those. And I'd say that's sort of what kind of like sparked my fire even more that, okay, maybe you can pursue this as a pro and like you should chase that dream a little bit. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Was that those two wins of national titles, were those your final year junior or when did they take place? Uh, yeah. Those were my last year as a junior. And is that what set you up to, I want to say, Subaru Gary Fisher? Yeah. So I went to the World Championships and sort of got to know that team a little bit yep. um, and just kind of tried to push my way in the door a little bit and was fortunate enough to yeah, get the opportunity to race on the then Subaru um, Gary Fisher team mm-hmm. for four years. It kind of changed different names throughout the years. It became Trek, um, Trek Subaru and then... Um, my final year on it is when they went to the Trek factory program. Um, but yeah, those four years I got a race with, like I became teammates with like JHK, Sam Schultz, Heather Erminger and Willa Kerber. So I think that was, those four years were like really instrumental in helping me develop and, um, just sort of learning what it takes to be a pro athlete. Um, so yeah, it was an awesome opportunity. How much 
<clears throat> through your pro mountain bike career, how much of that was like sign on the dotted line? You're going to be kind of, uh, you know, supported with bike kit components, nutrition, eyewear versus how much was ever called, you know, a privateer juggle where you're supporting yourself for, for yeah. this, that, or the other. I mean, yeah. How much was that uh, a factor of your career? Um, yeah, I think I've been pretty fortunate on the team side of things. Um, there's really only one year I sort of had to string things together um, in a sort of privateer fashion. Um, I was on the SRAM TLD team and that team folded after three years. And I was lucky enough to get to ride on the cliff. Um, cliff. Let's see, what was that team called? Cliff Bar Racing at the time. Yep. Um, and I didn't have a ton of support on that team, but they helped me get to the races. And I was able to put together a few um, personal sponsors that kind of let me focus on racing. Um, but yeah, that year it definitely was like on a pretty shoestring budget and it was like, okay, like you got to have a good season, get a good team next year. If you want to keep doing this. And, um, I did end up having a pretty good season and that's when I was able to sign with the cliff pro team, um, and race with them for two years before it folded. Um, and then yeah, now on the specialized off-road program. And is that, I mean, I feel like to an uneducated audience, they might pay attention to, okay, again, my history is obviously on the road. They might pay attention to pro road racing and see the same sort of thing happening where it's like a one team might have five different names in a 20 year period because the sponsor's on board for four years and then four years and three years and four years, whatever it is, each year it's changing. So, I mean, there is a great deal of congruity, even if teams' names change. And this is World Tour. Is it cutthroat like you were talking about with like the ebb and flow of teams and you're not even aware if the team's going to exist the next year? Or, or like how, how worrying is that as you're going through, call it the 20 teens and that, that, ebb and flow of pro mountain bike teams yeah i mean it's definitely something you're kind of always thinking about like i you're always worried about finding that contract for next season a little bit um so it's definitely like pretty stressful like at the end of the day there just aren't a ton of opportunities on the mountain bike side of things there aren't like really there's only two teams i would say right now um so it's not where like you just have tons of opportunities to even get bikes or kits like you're kind of doing a lot of it on your own um so yeah a lot of guys work hard to make it happen <laughs> and what are those teams right now these two teams um i would say there's the trek factory team um and they're i mean their primary focus are the world cups um i guess there's keegan's team the hit squad i kind of but that's kind of more like gravel now yeah. but i consider them a legit team that has like full mechanical support and all that at races. Yeah. Um, I'd say our team specialized off-road. We have pretty full support. Um, but yeah, like Giant was one of those teams and um, they no longer have their factory off-road program. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's just not a ton out there. <laughs> it's wild. I mean, I remember when people first posed the idea of teams and gravel and I was just like, shook my head and rolled my eyes and said, no, thank you. 
<laughs> but I mean, that was literally six years ago. It's like times have changed and, and it's almost uh, a no brainer that they do exist now. Um, right. What does, what does your team look like now? Like how many on the team do you have a traveling mechanic, multiple mechanics, one yours? Like what does, what does it look like to show up at a race? Yeah. So on my team, we have, um, Sophia Gomez via Pache. Um, she's been on the team since it started last year. We have a new addition this year, Howard Grotz. Um, he's sort of been on specialized for a while and was kind of on the team last year, I would say. He's not (laughs) Not slow slow by any means. No, excellent at going up hills. (laughs) Is he still, Uh, last I knew he was pursuing a a secondary degree in math. Is he, uh is he, is he, a professor on the side? Um, he was, yeah, he was studying to be a teacher. Um, he got his master's in mathematics and now he's sort of coming back to racing full time. Yep. He was going to do some teaching for a bit, but I think he, while he was going to school, just kind of missed the pro racing side of things and um, is coming back to race. So it'll be cool. Um, I don't know what the polar opposite of professional cycling is but i feel like (laughs) admittedly i studied math myself so i can sort of make fun of it i assume being a professor of math is the opposite of being a professional cyclist and i mean that the most tasteful way possible (laughs) to anybody who's listening who's a math professor it just sounds so worlds apart (laughs) yeah very very different career paths one's very calculated one is very uncalculated i'd say (laughs) yes okay um but yeah so, so take somebody like like Ian Boswell is a is supported by Specialized. He's not part of that program. Like he can't drop in. I mean, I realize everybody's sort of friendly in this world, but he's not going to show up at a race and, and expect support from you guys. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. We're kind of like our, I mean, Chris, who's our um, awesome mechanic, would probably help Ian Boswell because Chris is a nice guy and Ian's a nice guy. <laughs> um, but yeah, Chris Mathis is our mechanic and he's basically dedicated to um, taking care of Sophia Howard and I, as well as a couple specialized athletes if they need support throughout the weekend. But yeah, he's um, mostly dedicated to our team out there. Um, he handles everything from cleaning the bikes, getting them all prepped, pretty much changing tires for us all the time. So we're always going back and forth. Uh, and then also feed zones. He's there for us to give us bottles, give us food. Yeah. Um, if the race allows, do wheel changes and all that. So yeah, he's, he's pretty full on on the weekends. He has a lot of different hats he carries. <laughs> Does he give him a massage? Uh, no, no massage. <laughs> I've, n- I've never met a mechanic who does massage. So I wasn't oh. expecting a yes, but I'm like, man, oh man, like this dude's wearing many hats already. I wonder if he's <laughs> making the legs yeah. feel good too. No, I don't think there's enough time. He's, he's pretty busy working on bikes pretty late until the night already. Okay. Okay. Here's, here's sort of a question about being a contemporary pro cyclist here in 2023. Now I'm, I'm curious how you look at and assess those early years of racing now through the present. I've heard you talk about in other podcasts, you're pretty pure bike racer, right? So for example, by that, I mean, there was an intimidation factor that you felt in even applying for the lifetime grand prix because you didn't want it to be an acceptance by popularity contest. And admittedly, that's a very fair concern because there were some questions that were directly asking, like, are you going to support us on social media? 
I'm curious because at the same time, your Instagram feed is basically become like a pro mountain biker slash pro gravel rider modeling. <laughs> like you have amazing photography in your, in your Instagram. So it's, I guess it's out of a two part question. One, do you have a traveling photographer as you're out on the trail and, and, and out riding? And two, admittedly vague, going back to that initial question, like how do you compare those early days of, of pro bike racing when you're first stepping into it with the present? Yeah, I think, um, so yeah, no, I don't have a photographer that follows me all the time. Um, but I, I've worked, started working with a couple of new sponsors and, um, like, yeah, they paid to have a photographer come out on spirit tour and whatnot with us. So that makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I don't, honestly, I'm really bad at taking pictures when I'm riding. So it's great when, yeah, we have a photographer just follow us and get a bunch of content that I can post because I forget to take pictures when I'm riding. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, social media is kind of part of the job these days and I'm really not, wouldn't say I'm great at it, but I just, I just try to put stuff out there really. <laughs> So, um, yeah, social media is definitely something that wasn't really part of the job when I first started. Um, there's kind of like Twitter was becoming this thing that you would have and you'd share your race recaps and whatnot. And then now it's just snowballed into, you gotta be doing TikTok dances and yeah. all this stuff. <laughs> of course, of course. So. <laughs> I'm interested in. You know, your career has spanned a whole different variety of, of types of races and the pers- the pursuits of series and the pursuits of points. So, you know, it, it's sort of a, a question that I'm digging at is more like, how do you have your schedule and calendar dictated? So, you know, for much of your career, you were chasing UCI points, for example, or you were chasing the Epic Ride Series points or the pursuit of the Olympics or World Championship bids. Going into 2023, like we've talked about, I mean, you know, the Lifetime Grand Prix is the biggest series that you're going to be chasing. Do you have a preference one way or the other? Like whether you're pursuing races as part of a series or more of a freestyle approach to a year or or your calendar yeah, no, has been dictated from the beginning. So yeah, what do you, how do you feel about, about that calendar in the first place? Yeah, that's actually something I've kind of been thinking about a lot and I've sort of realized over this last year, like just pursuing the Grand Prix, I've kind of realized like, I've always had this long-term agenda for the whole season. Um, and that is in a way I kind of like that. So you just kind of have this constant goal you're chasing. Um, but then I'm also part of me is realizing like, okay, the Grand Prix has been great. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure I'll do it in 2024. Um, more so because I do want to just go check out all these different graphical events that aren't part of the lifetime series and see what else is out there. There's some really cool races that I want to go support, but have to end up skipping them to one, either focus on the Grand Prix or there's date conflicts or whatever. Like, um, rule three is a great example. I'm skipping that one this year just to focus on unbound, but that's probably the most fun gravel race I've done yet. Mm -hmm. And I, I really want to get back there and go do that race. So yeah, I think this year, like I'll have that whole season, um, sort of shaped around the Grand Prix. But next year I do kind of want to be more free spirited, if you will, and kind of just kind of go all over the place and see what everything's all about. Yeah. Um there's races like Badlands in Spain. It's a um I forget exactly how far it is, like 380 miles or so. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. I want to check that one out, sort of sort of do some more of this even longer stuff than we're doing now, like once or twice a year. Right. So 
yeah, I think if um, I get some sponsors that would be behind that and see the vision too, it'd be cool to pursue some stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Is it one thing that I think is really helping gravel succeed and continues to succeed as opposed to, to run into this brick wall is the races are so different and diverse to your point. Badlands is so much different than rule of three is so much different than gravel. Locos is different than anything in the grand prix. I mean, even within the grand prix, all the races are quite different and I applaud them for adding new races so that it's not just the repetitive cycle year after year. You know, you and I are a different breed because we're racing these races week in and week out, month in and month out. And that's a privilege of which, you know, we've accepted and we get to do it. You know, many people are going to choose one or two events over the course of the entire year. Right. And I just love that they can, I call it vote with your participation, vote with your entry fees. Like you want to do a 200 mile race. Great. You want to do a really gnarly 25 mile gravel race. That's great too. And you know, mm-hmm. the best ones are going to succeed. Yeah. There's just, so many different styles and different yeah. options. That, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> it is. So, um, And on that note, you have ridden and raced all over the world. We're going to wrap up with our traditional three questions. You've ridden and raced all over the world. Lay it on out there. What's your favorite place to ride a bike? What is the number one place that you would like to ride a bike that you've never ridden? And with whom, living or otherwise, Fictitious nonfiction, with whom would you like to go for a bike ride? <laughs> um, I'd say the coolest place I've ever ridden. Huh. I'd say Champeray, Switzerland. I did Worlds there. Let's see, that was a long time ago. Maybe 2011, I want to say. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just the views there. You're in the Alps. Um, it's some sick mountain biking where you're just ripping on like different goat trails and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and just beautiful. There's cool huts in the mountains. You just stop, get a coke, eat a burger. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'd have to say uh, Champagne, Switzerland's pretty hard to beat. Um, Great first answer. I love that you lead <laughs> a mountain bike. I mean, that, that that shows where your heart is. You're still a mountain biker. Yeah, I'm a mountain biker at heart. But <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, yeah, place I want to go. I think I'd really love to go backpack in the Dolomites of Italy um, or somewhere mm-hmm. in Eastern I guess you said ride a bike, not. Well, <laughs> it's a it's an open ended question. You want to go somewhere <laughs> about backpacking and and the Dolomites? We'll let that slide. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, really, like Italy just kind of draws my attention. So it'd be cool to do some bike packing, a little backpacking, just go adventure, see what Italy's all about. Yeah, nice. Um, and then yeah, who would I ride with? Um, that's a tough one. I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> you can go um, for a bike ride. We'll go f- very, very full circle. You can go bike riding with Russell Finsterwald, your great grandfather. I'm just going to answer for you. Yeah, I would do that for sure. That'd be a pretty cool experience. <laughs> right on. So, uh, well, having to backtrack one, having lived in Italy for a couple of years, raced in Italy for a whole very long time, done a bunch of training camps. I hope you do the UCI Gravel World Championships because you would represent us well. And then you could stick around afterwards and go hang out in the Dolomites because that'd be pretty killer. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's how to kill two birds with one stone there. <laughs> right. And yeah, time stamped. This is a spring 2023 podcast. So it's always interesting to see how the year pans out. But um, sweet. Russell, thank you very much for the time. I will presumably see you at Sea Otter and 
keep uh keep on keeping on man it's uh it's yeah, really thanks a lot so cool enjoy the rest of your time out in california as well yeah appreciate it thank you very much hey there dear listener seriously thanks again for listening i appreciate you taking the time I know life is busy. There is a lot to do to fit in every day. So please know that I do appreciate it. Busyness is a thing. The daily juggle of work, life, family, health, activity, recreation, relaxation. All of those things has me reaching for AG1 by Athletic Greens every morning. The vitamins, minerals, micronutrients, adaptogens, and probiotics are all delivered from real food. They are an NSF certified company for the safety stamp of approval from a contamination standpoint. And these stuff just tastes good. If you are tired of juggling bottles of vitamins, just like I was, look no further than AG1 by Athletic Greens. It is as simple as visiting athleticgreens.com slash Ted King. And you will pick up a year's supply of vitamin D plus five free travel packs with your first purchase. Again, athleticgreens.com slash Ted King. It is the daily nutritional insurance that I rely on to start my day every day, and I trust you will try it and be on board as well. There you have it. Folks, until next time, please enjoy the ride.